This episode, I'm joined by Carlo Carpenter to discuss the life and work of Thomas de Quincey. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep everything running, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Carlo Carpenter, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to do it. We are going to be discussing the work of Thomas de Quincey, uh, primarily known for his, uh, I guess you'd call it drug diary. It's in the genre of drug diaries, but it uh, certainly spans certain other genres. Um, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, which is sort of an infamous book. Uh, those who are readers, who will be on the fray, it's one of those peculiar texts throughout history. Uh, but also, you know, he is a philosopher, a general thinker, lives an interesting life. I didn't know too much about De Quincey at all before um, before reading this. This was like sort of my first uh, real entry into his work. Uh, but before we dive into his work and probably primarily confessions is a large part of our discussion, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what it is you do and why De Quincey interests you so much. Yes, I'm currently a PhD student at Drew University in New Jersey, USA. I've been working on De Quincey's texts for my dissertation for a few years now. Um, not Confessions primarily, actually, his later Sketches of Life and Manners, which was published in Eighth Edinburgh Magazine in the 30s into 1841. I first came across De Quincey just as part of a romanticism course during my master's coursework. Didn't really think about him too much, but then when it came to deciding about my dissertation topic, I was always interested in how authors experiment with form and genre and as well as the early Victorian kind of periodical boom and seeing this keyword of the sketch and what that meant to to publish a sketch and what the generic and formal features of what that could be in the that periodical space interested me and he was the perfect candidate to dive into that and see how he bends that form of writing how he interacts with the larger world of letters through that at the time so who are you, just out of interest, who are your other sort of literary uh, interests during your PhD? I mean, who is it in within, I guess, literature as a whole? Well, you know, who is it who brings you to literature? What brings me to literature? Wow. Um, <laughs> that's a long story, depending on how far you want to go back. I actually started um, college thinking of doing something in the engineering world, uh, design, things like that. And then through hiccups in the first year or two of um, college, I realized that man, there's a little bit too much programming and uh, calculus doing um, engineering, an engineering curriculum. So, and I was doing the classic, you know, American lit surveys that every college kid in the U.S. has to do. And I was doing much better in that. And I was feeling, feeling much more accomplished in the work I was turning in. And doing an American survey, you focus on writers like um, Thoreau, Emerson, 
Hawthorne. And so I kind of backpedal to their British contemporaries and predecessors. And so that's how I got really primarily interested in British Romanticism. Um, and then going forward beyond the classic Shelley, Wordsworth, Coleridge's, I've familiarized myself with Carlyle. He's mm. probably my favorite thinker of that era of 19th century, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, literature. And he obviously goes beyond literature and all sorts of different commentary and criticism. But that's the that's kind of the world I've been most interested in in terms of literature. Um, but also any other sort of writer who uh can puzzle readers and bend forms of of established literature so for instance nabokov totally different realm but he's my favorite writer and i think that being someone who's ended up focusing on experimentation and form and genre and going between genre these are writers who share something even there, though they're of quite different worlds. And it's always, that's what's interested me, interested me the most. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, speaking of other writers, I know, you know, this isn't, this isn't a question that I always ask all the time now, but I know you wanted me to ask it. So it's the mm-hmm. return of the Hermetics question. Uh, you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? And Thomas de Quincey, as per the question, is already sat in the, in the room waiting. Yeah. For- if the Quincy's there, I would have to say, first, John Keats. Second would be T.S. Eliot. And third would be the great Russian-Soviet director, Andrei Tarkovsky. Okay. What is, what's, <laughs> the, uh, what's, the, what's the connection? Okay. So I think all of these writers have something similar in their own lives, their own careers, to Quincy, they share something or they contrast something. So Keith, for instance, if we're looking at characters who have been passed down to us, who represent this thing that we call British romanticism, he's so far an opposite in terms of his own life and his own character compared to, to Quincy, you know, Keith is someone who published primarily poetry, and De Quincey very much did not. He's a prose writer. He's a writer of autobiography, confession, criticism. And so how they express that what we have now is the cultural patrimony of British Romanticism is t- goes in two totally completely direct different directions, and more so... Keats, in terms of his biography, is given that character of the the tragic romantic who dies young. He dies, I think, what, 25, mm. knowing he will die of tuberculosis. Um, and so in that last few years of his life, publishes an just amazing treasure of poetry. And De Quincey, on the other hand, is a writer of prose, writer of autobiography, who has to keep on, he has to keep on living past that romantic moment for decades after. He's kind of denied that 
tragic life of or tragic death of what we I think associate with romantics, you know, Chatterton, Keats, Shelley, Byron, even though Byron, I don't know how tragic his death was, but um and then with Eliot, there's a critic, I don't know who it might have actually been Pound himself, who said of Eliot he was a man who sacrificed his life to books. Mm. And the product of that we have is the wasteland. Mm. And I think to embody in a text all of your reading and through all these references and intertextual connections i think that having keith and selling what he did with that in conversation with elliot saying how he did it i think would be incredible um and of course elliot might have been a little bit too mystical for uh Keats, but I think they do something very similar. And this idea of a man who sacrifices his life to books is a interesting figure to consider across different eras of of literature. But I think actually Tarkovsky is the most important to include there because Tarkovsky had this idea, and he writes about this of what his films do. It, he calls it sculpting in time. Mm-hmm. And you see this reach its apotheosis, I think, with his great uh, film, The Mirror, which composes the scenes of this woman's life and the lives of people who are connected to her. And it's in that Tarkovskian sort of way, meditative and meandering and quite slow, just images that go between scenes without too much connection. But And it sounds cliche, but that film comes together right at the very end. Mm. And you understand, oh, this was a portrait of this woman's life that Mm. right at the very last shot, it clicks, you get it. Mm. And I think this sculpting in time and depicting someone's life in that way, Tarkovsky does it through the medium of film, but to Quincy, that's his whole MO for his literary career at least the the autobiographic and confessionary side of that you see that you see time working in that way i mean you you just pointed that out to me now and that certainly that certainly sticks for the confessions that you're Mm -hmm. following is seemingly i mean there is there is a linear narrative there is a coherence there but at times it is um it is vague it is meandering it is focusing in on fairly um asinine details written in uh-huh. a very, very beautiful style which all uh maybe not all cohere at the end but they just sort of in ebbs and flows cohere at a point um and then it all meanders once again um so it's an interesting room i mean uh, I wonder what they would make of De Quincey. I mean, you know, it's 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 tough from the confessions, even though it is, you know, his confessions to really get a picture of the man. And looking at the the few portraits of him, he's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a ghoulish, yeah, uh, somewhat. Uh, it's a figure you would shy away from in a pub. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So I wonder what they would, especially someone like Elliot, what they would make of him. And yeah, I mean, physically, he is quite. Um, well, he's a heroin addict, right? He's a heroin. Yeah, I mean, he ruined his body from opium. His he complains so much about his liver issues and his teeth rotting out. And um, he's a very apparently small man, like just maybe over five feet tall. So there's this 
kind of <laughs> Carlisle actually in a letter calls him the dwarf opium eater, you know, to make to poke fun at him before they reconciled. Um but yeah, so he's he's a strange figure uh physically, but apparently he was always quite quite a kind, gentle soul in, in conversation as long as he wasn't nodding off from too many uh too much opium. <laughs> mm. Well, I don't, don't know if you've read any Schopenhauer, but actually the oddly the, the, the writing of De Quincey reminded me most of Schopenhauer of this uh mm-hmm. very extremely cynical, bitter, ill writing, which then when you behind it is as you've clarified there a sort of a strange kindness, a sort of sympathy for sympathy for those who are also existing in this uh bitter world but um i guess to just just i know you know the confessions hasn't been the focus of your own studies but i guess just to begin there what is the you know this is most well-known text and an infamous Mm -hmm. literary text what's what's the genesis of this where does this come from and um yeah i mean that's just the general question where did it come from i think that there is the established literary genre if you want to call it of the confession going back to aquinas and then more famously and more pertinent for de quincey rousseau i think he does something a little quite a bit different from those two writers though and you could say that something a little bit more present in his life as a a point of genesis would actually be charles lamb who wrote confessions of a drunkard in I think 1813, so a few years earlier before De Quincey, but I, what he wants to do, what De Quincey wants to do, I think, is to, through confessing, through bearing some sort of personal experience upon the pages of the literary marketplace, he wants to assert some kind of literary identity and it's doing it through the confession. I mean, it's a, it's a good way to get people's attention. You know, the, I mean, the very title "Confessions of an English Opium Eater." I mean, it's it's meant to to ruffle some, rustle some feathers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what he wants to do. Is again, this going back to Keats, this tension between well, a romantic author or writer should be expressing himself at least we think probably through through poetry but De Quincey couldn't really do that he wrote poetry as a teenager translated you know classical verses from latin and things like that but it's that's not his chosen medium and so i think what he wants to do is is put forward this romantic persona put himself out there into the world of the magazine world of letters which was quite a small world at that time but he wants to assert that that authorial identity in some way so he does it through this you could say character of the opium eater i don't i think that the persona of the opium eater it is an authorial projection Mm -hmm. but all projections come at an angle and i think there's quite a bit of overlap between the de quincey himself and then what he depicts through this figure yeah, I mean, to, to think of a later figure who is um, dealing directly with this form of not necessarily confessional, but uh, drunk and less so drug-fueled. I mean, someone like Bukowski, where it's uh, Charles mm-hmm. Bukowski, where it's a bit, uh, 
a bit hammed up, a bit theatric, a bit theatrical, a bit um, schlocky, romantic, you know, like, yeah. whereas um, Confession, Confessions of an Opium Eater always has this sort of uh, dirty edge. Everything's a bit, bit miserable. Like, you wouldn't want to be there, whereas someone like Bukowski or maybe even like Hunter S. Thompson, there's this, uh, mm-hmm. there's an, there, there isn't much excitement in a way of um, in Confessions. It's a very miserable life. And I think, yeah, maybe he struggled to he struggled to add in any sort of moments, you know, of dramatization. Um, I guess just to just to focus on his literary career, though. So you're saying he wrote poetry when he was younger. It, would you, you know, what does his literary career look like? Is this really the the beginning? Is this received well, even though it ruffles feathers, as you said? Yeah, I um, he so he his literary career in terms of what he published has come about right at this time. So he's actually, he moved to the Lake District permanently in 1809, gets in with Wordsworth and Coleridge there, helping them to collect their own writings, published projects that they were working on, moved to London around 1820 or so and gets in to the world of the, the London magazine. So the famous publisher of the the Cockney School with uh, Charles Lamb seems to be his most intimate contact there. And he writes the the confessions in two parts, two issues in the fall of 1821. Mm -hmm. He had a few pieces for the London magazine prior to that. But in terms of when his when he really enters into the public, it's, it's through the confessions at that time. And it proved, I think, to be his most popular work, obviously, as we've been talking about now, but mm. in his lifetime. It's the only work of his until the end of his life that ends up getting a, a book publication in the following year. Mm. So to talk about what De Quincey's career looked like, which spanned, if we want to say, 1821 is, is the beginning until into the 1850s. Every single thing he published, really, until Selections Grave and Gay is published in 1854, with the exception of the 1822 edition of Confessions, every single thing appeared in a magazine and only in a magazine, pretty much. So that's really what he staked his career on, is that form of publication and the character of the opium eater in the public eye and those sorts of interactions that that world provided where he's not insulated by the book mm. you know it's his name isn't the only name on the on the cover or on the cover at all mm. he's in in the pages of something that's much more popular much cheaper to buy for readers um and also provides a, a level of interaction and he definitely exploited that that interaction with other contributors and other contributors, editors, yeah. So he didn't make much money. Uh, it seems not. It's um, he the the debt is always seems to be a problem for De Quincey, and he was, as he says, the term of his time was put to the horn, so has to go to debtors' court and debtors' prison, um, quite a few times throughout his life, and so the image again of what his life ended up looking like, especially when he moves away from the Lake District into the city. So London and then later on Edinburgh is 
It's quite bleak, unfortunately. Um, which is strange because you see in Confessions and, and other of his autobi- autobiographic writings that he has quite a an inheritance left to him and uh, how that inheritance is squandered or ends up in someone else's hands is the kind of a phantom that haunts a lot of this, his own writing, especially of that period of his life is his thirties or so. Yeah. So I guess two, two questions to really delve into his writing. What did he seek to achieve with the confessions? I mean, obviously it's a confession, but it differs in a mm-hmm. way to Augustine and uh, others. And then do you see him as seeking to achieve anything with his writing overall? Because his writing overall, I mean, this, as I said to you before we started recording, I, uh, I only really knew De Quincey from his name from this text and something, uh, The Last Days of Immanuel Kant, which, you know, is for some reason people end up reading that, which is a really fascinating little biographical thing. Um, you sent me all this stuff to read and I realized like his writing spans so much and is really very diverse. So what did the confessions, what did he seek to achieve? And then does his writing have, you know, a thread, which he, a question or a theme that he's always tackling? Yeah, it's... Um... It's kind of a strange thing for him to use this term confession, um, because again, it's not uh, it's not in the same mode of um, Augustine or Rousseau. It's 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 not really religious mm. in the way that you would think when you see the word confession that it's going to come up. Um, yeah, I think it's this this attempt to bear the self publicly in this way to get attention within the literary space to and to assert some sort of romantic ideal of of how can a text embody the self or some version of the self right i mean that's the that's the mo for so much of romanticism or at least that's what we think of you know when you take your your intro to romanticism course, it's like, oh, well, it's experience, it's the self, expressing your emotions, it's this thing called the sublime, which no one exactly maybe will uh, define for you in the best terms, but I think that's what he wants to do. He wants to, um, he has a story in terms of his experiences with opium. He goes to, um, Taylor, the editor of the London magazine, and says, you know, you've been asking something for me. Let's let me put this out and just see what happens. So I think it's yeah, the question of how do you make the romantic self a public commodity mm. through the text that people receive it is an ever present question, I think, for De Quincey. And especially his obviously his autobiographic works um but he injects himself into his critical works as well and you know addressing you know the generous reader and going on all these different tangents and things um would would this have been seen as transgressive in his day and and what was if so what was transgressive about it uh i think that this bearing of one's faults and one's um, suffering 
in such depth as he does, especially in the confessions, that latter part of the confessions, the pains of opium, I think would have been something that, I, you know, maybe people, his readers might have clutched their pearls a bit to see this such a public outflow of, you know, he's quite, he's quite admitting of his, his faults. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is the one thing you could say is quite transgressive, but where does transgression become celebrity? I think that's a, that's something that he was thinking of as he, he wrote this as well. And I think he really knows what he's doing. And obviously we, we know that it became quite popular and this, he's known as the opium eater. He's not, mm. it doesn't take long before the identity of De Quincey is linked to the opium eater. And the story of that's quite funny, but, um, that's the closest thing I'd say is something that's truly transgressive. And I think that also to read it from now, the 21st century, um, opium eater, like we have nowadays, like, well, there's an opiate crisis and there's all these, it's, those sorts of words are loaded with our own modern baggage quite a bit. So I think it was a little, in terms of the actual drug question is a bit, well, it was, bit, it was legal, right, and fairly common. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he and he writes about this. He He's shocked and amazed by how much a, a pint of scotch costs. But then you can just go into the apothecary and get some laudanum for pennies. And he's, <laughs> and he's amazed. And, you know, it was a common, you know, good. It's like going and getting Tylenol from the drugstore now, I guess, is what laudanum served in his time in a way. And so... Yeah, I mean, was was a uh, opium, I guess, addiction of his to his extent common, and he was maybe one of the first to say, "Hang on, like, you know, look at look at this." I mean, it's you know, it's an intriguing question, right? Of um, to write a drug diary where you're doing you're openly admitting to you know sort of illegal feats, such as someone like once again Hunter S. Thompson, or I don't know, even Alistair Crowley in Diary of a Drug Fiend. Um, that that has a different sort of transgression against uh, law and you know like social social taboos of the fact that you're mm-hmm. being the outsider, but there's a strange form of transgression where you're saying you know well I'm addicted to this thing that is extremely common and this is what it's doing to me, um, but you're all we're you know we're all sort of uh, complicit in this the, yeah. the normality of it all. Yeah, I mean that's the to go to what's actually transgressive. It's not the usage isn't transgressive. It's the, it's the admitting to the weakness of where that usage gets out of hand. Mm-hmm. I think would be the, the transgressive part, which again, for a modern reader might be a bit confusing in terms of how we conceptualize drug use and especially opium usage now or opioids. Right. But mm-hmm. it's a funny thing. And I mean, I try in my own writing, even to not use the term addiction mm-hmm. because to Quincy never uses that term as far as I know. And that's mm-hmm. quite a a modern kind of categorization of, of what drug use can lead to. He always calls it opium eating or my opium demon, you know? So it's, mm-hmm. it's maybe a bit pedantic, but I think that it's, it's, it's romantic. Quite, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you take it some, um, you're not in the world of the modern world of, you know, 
oh, it's a prescription. And then, oh, it gets out of hand. And then you have drug rehab and all these scientific medical terms. Now he's, this is a character to him. This is something mm. that, you know, he had to call it, yeah, the demon, right? The mm. opium demon. <laughs> how does that how does that transform his perception of the world? So De Quincey sees opium as a tool with which you can reach a higher plane of perception, self-perception, interaction with your own mind space. Mm-hmm. And you see this, he spells it out the most in Suspiria de Profundus, which comes out in 1845, and he says it's the sequel to Confessions. Um, he's, it's good to maybe compare what the role that opium serves in his worldview and his method of artistry or artistic formulation uh vis-a-vis Coleridge actually so his great mentor Coleridge if you look at Kublai Khan you know what's the mythos of Kublai Khan's you know he said though I took too much opium I fell asleep I had this brilliant dream that 300 lines of this poem were given to me I could only record 70 when I woke back up and so for Coleridge opium almost serves this muse role it's almost like it's you're going into this ethereal realm where the divine power of creation gifts you the text and it's your responsibility as the artist to record that that perfect word as best you can when you wake back up the quincy it's quite different he sees it as a tool he sees it and again going back to Suspiria de profundus solitude i think for him functions this way rumination these are things which the conscientious mind, the the thoughtful artist can reach a level of interaction with the self, one's own memories, experiences, and then transmit them in a way that was formerly barred to him, cut off from him. And it's kind of this key into this higher plane of thinking. Um, and that's how he gets his method of recording his own autobiography in this quite digressionary discursive way that has puzzled people and has upset other readers but it's i think that's the key feature of his writing is these digressions and where all his meandering narrative goes and you're like what were we talking about at the beginning of the section and you've gone somewhere else but i mean that's to me the the brilliant part of it, that's the entertainment, as frustrating as it is sometimes. He's giving himself over to the opium demon? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's... And this is something that, I mean, De Quincey himself, how he writes and how he kind of critiques what he does, he's quite preoccupied with the visual. You know, the actual dream image is something to him that, I think that's kind of what the text within his own mind that he wants to record is the the thing is, you know, the flashing of images to his inner eyes where he's drawing so much of it from. And, you know, he writes about 
the way he conceptualizes memory is, I think, how people do remember things. It's not just I was born and then I was this age, this age, this age, and then here I am now in this linear way. It's, you know, it's this kaleidoscopic slideshow of images and it's his responsibility as an, as a writer and as a writer who maybe is elevated by his usage of, of drugs at certain points to record that the best he can. So, I mean, let's expand upon uh, dreams because I think maybe that's yeah. a good bridge between confessions and Suspiria de Profundis, which I think, am I right in thinking this was the one you said to me was really his sort of central philosophical work? This is where he's, I think, most explicit in terms of spelling out his program of, of what he wants to do in his writing and he defines his... This is where his he's most explicit in what he wants to do in his writing and gives it definitions and gives mm -hmm. it, he kind of spells out the system the most in that text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what is the system? <laughs> so I say dreams here. And then you said, let's talk about dreams. And it's, it's a funny thing, you know, you see this in the, in the critical writings on him is okay. Well, what is it? Dream? Is it, is it opium trip? Is it memory? Is it vision? These are all kind of used anonymously for the most part. Um, so what he spells out in his system there is his system of memory is essentially threefold. So you have something called the involute, which is similar to something that appears, I think it's in wordsworth's prelude the spots of time i listened to your episode with i think was his name brian counter the mm -hmm. delusions and Bruce. image yeah first yeah. image yeah yeah and um and to lose this idea of the sensuous um sensuous sign right mm -hmm. it's i think it's exactly what Deleuze puts there, I think, is exactly this idea of, of what De Quincey has here as the involute. So these are sort of the sense memories that come and they awaken something that's a little bit buried in your mind. And, uh, okay, this is something I connect, connect to a different point. This is in my narrative. Um, the best example, the clearest example people will have, again, going back to Proust, is you know, the Madeleine and the tea. And then that kind of sends you into this through your own memories. Um, De Quincey does this quite a lot with sound, actually. So a, a woman's laughter, you know, that's De Quincey's uh, romanticizing that female sex a bit, as we see throughout a lot of his autobiography, autobiographical writing. He always has these sort of tragic, tragic female figures or women who laugh, women who maybe are uh, on the side making comments that awaken some new memory. Um, so yes, that's kind of the, the pinprick into the system of memory that he tries to sketch out here. The involute is what he calls it. You know, sensuous sign to lose, I think is the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. But what this all feeds into and what he spells out um in Suspiria de Profundis, this idea of the palimpsest of the human brain. 
Um, I don't. Is that a term that people you think maybe are familiar with? Palimpsest. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit arcane. I don't know. I would say so. Yeah, it's not a term I'm super <laughs> familiar with. So okay, so I'll just try to maybe give what that word means in its own usual definition. Is that a palimpsest would be like in the Middle Ages. You have the monks writing their books in their monastery day after day, and they're writing on vellum. They don't have just stacks of paper that they can pull off, so they have vellum to write on this stretched leather, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it gets to the point where they run out of things to write on, so they just take a book off the shelf, some chronicle that some monk from a past generation wrote, and they just scratch out his ink, and they use the book themselves to write their new thing. And so this idea of the palimpsest is that the physical site of the writing has been reused over and over again, but the the ink from all the past iterations can have this ghost of what was written before. Mm-hmm. But there's this rhetorical exchange through time and through the layers of different writings that have been put down there that kind of shine through. Mm-hmm. And so there's this new rhetorical significance contained within that physical space right you know the vellum the vellum bound chronicle of a of the monk there um how i actually came across the term is quite funny is uh i did a course in college where we went to paris which was quite nice but the whole premise of the course was to go and uh see different churches around the city Pretty nice excuse just to be a tourist for a college credit, you know, but but my professor explained to me we were at Notre Dame and he said, okay, well, look at this church and we have these associations with it. Okay, it's Middle Ages, Gothic architecture, Catholic. But this church was built on a site which previously this was probably a Roman temple. Mm hmm. With Temple to Venus, who was there, Notre Dame. And then the Romans probably built it on top of a sacred site that the Celts in that area probably had worshiping some other Notre Dame of their own, right? Mm. Some kind of fertility goddess or earth mother or something. Mm. So it's that the physical space contains this conversation through text, buildings, whatever that can transmit through time. And the layers kind of modify and, and give new content to each other in a way that you didn't expect because they're all located in this same zone, right? So this is how Quincy sees memory and he's thinking, okay, well, I have an experience when I'm a child. And then at a certain point in my life, something will invoke that memory. And there's a reason for that. It's it's pertinent at that later time for some reason. Mm -hmm. And so I can write that. I can record that. And then maybe, so I remember that event when I'm five years old, when I'm 20 years old. And then something else happens when I'm 30 years old. And I can write about it again. And then maybe when I'm 40. But then what happens is, not only are you remembering that first event that was so poignant in your childhood, but then you're remembering all the other times you remembered it. Mm-hmm. So there's this, this ability for a memory to kind of have its original iteration, 
But then all the significance builds up in this very special way later on in your life. And so not only does he see the palim- uh, the memory as a palimpsest, his own autobiographic, autobiographic career as a palimpsest, he kept keeps diving into those same early periods of his life and in quite a mind-bending way. And that's the question is, well, God, why did De Quincey keep almost compulsively committing himself to this autobiographic project? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the question that scholars have been trying to answer for a long time, and it's it's quite an interesting one. Why do, why do you think it is that he keeps returning? Because <laughs> he can't help it? And in terms of that palimpsest that, we've, that, you, that you've been talking about, I mean, it seems like you never get away from that, right? It's a strange, uh, almost torturous loop of memories yeah. and memories. Um, so it's always going to be a new, um, sort of a strange, strange return all the time. Yeah, you're returning to you can't help but add a layer, right? You already have the you already have the frame, just put another layer on and see what happens and see how the previous layers interact. I think it's quite a puzzling thing when you try to look at this autobiographic or confessionary career and then to Quincy's own life. And the way I've tried to explain it is the borrowing from the French post-structuralist these terms the distinction of writer and author like writer function author function that i think bart talks about in some way foucault talks about in some way Mm -hmm. Uh, for clarity i call it historical writer and projected or imagined author so this distinction between there's a there's a man who actually wrote the text yeah that's the writer but then the author is kind of who as we read we imagine that person to be okay and they're linked in some way, but they're, they're, there's a distance there. Mm-hmm. And I think for Quincy, going back to your question about where does his career really start, with the Confessions in 1821, De Quincey's born 1785, dies 1859. So this Confessions is released almost, almost at the exact middle point of his life. Mm-hmm. And that's what, which I think, again, how he relates to other romantics is quite late. So what is that? He's 36, mm-hmm. quite late, I guess, for a romantic. You know, we think of them as these guys, blustering guys in their 20s who die in their 20s. Um, and so it's almost as if for him, because he writes, he keeps compulsively going back to this autobiographic project. He very rarely will ever depict a scene that occurs after 1821, after the publications of the Confessions. Mm. He's always returning to his childhood, his time at Oxford, when he comes to the lakes and gets to establish intimate relationships with Wordsworth and Dorothy Wordsworth, Coleridge, his family, the other, the Lakers, and then moves to London to begin his, his career. Very rarely will you ever see him write about anything that occurs after that middle point in his life. Mm. And so it's almost as if for De Quincey, the historical writer and the imagined author cannot coexist, mm. even though they should. Mm. And so he, it's like one half of his life cannibalizes the other half of his yeah. life for, for literary content in a way. 
Biographically speaking, does he sort of stop living at that point as well? That's see, that's the thing. It's <laughs> obviously he does. He does continue to live after that point. Mm-hmm. Oh, right? I mean, I mean has, like um, experienced life, you know. Right. He he, he has a write about right now. He has a biography. He has events. I mean, his he moved to Edinburgh. I think around 1830. His wife dies in 1837. There are things that happen, mm. obviously. Yeah, but he it does he doesn't write about it, and cl- I think from his biography, clearly he doesn't. A lot of his connections from earlier on in his life are lost. Wordsworth, Coleridge, his wife dies eighteen thirty seven. Lamb, Charles Lamb dies in thirty four. So it, he is cut off from a lot of those connections from from his twenties and thirties for mm-hmm. sure. But it's a curious thing. Yeah, he he doesn't really write at all about that second half of his life. That second half of his life is committed to depicting and redepicting the first half of his life over and over again. Do you think he um, regressed? I mean, he doesn't seem to have lived a very happy life. No. (laughs) Do you think he went back to a point where there was at least some semblance of happiness or, you know, some worth of, of living? Maybe at the very end where he's, he's beginning to be recognized and, he his works are being collected and things like that but it, yeah from from about 1830 to the end of his life in 59 it, it seems really bleak i mean he's just moving between residence to residence to avoid debt collectors on the outskirts of edinburgh and things um at least one child dies his wife dies you know and you know not to minimize those tragedies in his life, but I think he barely mentions his wife or his children at all in his writing. But who he does mention are his literary connections. Mm-hmm. And Wordsworth and Coleridge are, of course, the, the two mm-hmm. you know, titans of, of impact on De Quincey and influence. And there's a lot of drama that occurs in the 18 teens into the 1820s between all of them that caused them all to break and split off. So I think there's this also memorial of those destroyed relationships between his idols and himself that I, that definitely, you know, lends this tragic tone to that latter, latter half of his life. Considering there's this inherent recursion then within his writing and a sort of um, playful meta understanding of time and what it is to write and also what it is to be an author, where does uh, where does De Quincey get to? You know, is there a, anything near the end where he makes you know not a definitive statement but um, um, recapitulates you know his life or sort of says something which changes is there any form of like progression regarding his 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 uh perspective of 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 life yeah it's it's hard to say again you you have to consider is that question for de quincey the man or is that question for de quincey the author you know uh, in a way he achieves something it's almost like you know writing is therapy to him it seems like you know to to have to keep diving back into that early part of your life and and recontextualizing it reconnecting these memories over and over again you know it's 
if he achieved some semblance of peace of mind, acceptance, it's through the writing, you know. But again, you know, to what extent did he feel like he actually achieves that? At the end of the period of profundness, I paraphrase, I paraphrase here, but he says something like, you know, you readers, you know that I'm someone who who writes quite openly about my own experience and about memory and things. But he, the final line of that text is is something like, you know, if any man could be could see his own life laid out to him in a rational way before he's born, who would ever ask to be born? Which is like, that's a dark thought, but I mean, that's, I think, gets to his, his headspace. Well, he would say that, no offense to the man. I mean, live yeah, <laughs> yeah, of alive. there's probably is plenty of, plenty of people who would see their life play out before mm-hmm. they say, yeah, I'll live that. That looks pretty good. Whereas if yeah, you're Quincy, for- you're emphatic, you're yeah. not going to want to to do that but then yeah but what that i think points to is is how he what him the autobiograph the romantic self is and kind of what that ends up looking like if you're committed to this mission of of you know this great romantic mission of recording your own emotion and own experience I mean, the tone of it for him is quite different than someone like a Wordsworth mm-hmm. uh, or even a Keats. I mean, Keats is someone who ruminates on death, his knowing impending death mm. in a certain way. But I mean, to read something like, you know, Bright Star, Ode to a Nightingale, when I, uh, when I think of when I'll cease to be it's quite different from from De Quincey's quite dark expressions of his own experience. Um, but I think that that in itself is something that it just shows you the the variated forms of what that romantic persona, where it can end up, what kind of character it can it can unfold. Mm-hmm. So your own work touches on uh, the later works of De Quincey, which right. I guess we haven't really touched upon too much. I don't know if you wanted to bring anything in here about that. Yeah, so I'm I focus on his Sketches of Life and Manners, which was published in Tate's Edinburgh Magazine, 1834 to 1841. Uh, De Quincey is someone who's a strange person to define in terms of his social and and political views he's mm-hmm. he's a a skeptical tory in the burkean kind of tradition i think uh the most similar writer of his own time in terms of both style and outlook on the world is is carlisle mm-hmm. and so he he writes these pieces for william tate's magazine who william tate in Edinburgh is is very much of this that Scottish Whig reformist uh, bent. So it's a, it's a funny relationship that they have as between contributed contributor and editor. Um, but De Quincey bends his uh, social and political outlook depending on who he's writing for, what publication, which is quite funny to sketch out the the 
what he writes about as um, in terms of politics, very different conceptions or uh, depictions of the same event, depending on what magazine you're reading. But so these are a series of sketches. They've been counted in different ways. The the modern count is 25, uh, which is what I follow. And they are the longest form, actually, of any of his autobiographic writings. Mm -hmm. So 25 sketches across eight years, which is quite a jump in page count compared to Confessions or or Suspiria. Um, And he really ramps up that digressionary style, that discursive style, you know, which I think is permitted by the, the sketch episodic nature of what he's doing, which is what I explore. And I think that's quite fun to see how the form and the content can interact and, and kind of amplify each other in that way. Mm-hmm. And writers or um, you know, critics and literary historians have sort of ignored this, this source because I think of its episodic nature and they don't, it's not as, self-contained as the confessions are um, or as popular of course and there's some publication history where they are re-edited and reprinted later on in his life in book form which i think has caused if a if a critic does go to these texts they go to that latter version Mm. which is quite heavily edited and and pared down in terms of what he's doing, in terms of experimenting. So I I return to the original magazine version and try to connect that to his autobiographic project as a whole, how he uses the magazine as a kind of laboratory to, through literary practice, kind of get to these later conceptions of memory that he defines more explicitly as in Suspiria, as we talked about. because this was a this was something that he, you know, you can say if you want to go back to the confessions, he does all of these same tactics in terms of how he bends narrative and and things like that. But he defines it towards the end of his career. But he's kind of working it out in writing earlier, which is an interesting. That's kind of what the the goal of my project or part of it is is trying to look at. What do you think we can take from reading De Quincey today? <laughs> I think it's a it's a great way to depict oneself in a creative way, in a way that actually gets to how memory really does function. Mm-hmm. Um Again, going back to the Tarkovsky, mentioning Tarkovsky at the beginning, I think De Quincey's mission here, whether or not he succeeds or or doesn't, is he sees memory as a certain way, and it's his goal to transmit that form of memory into writing. And you can say he succeeds or doesn't or fails to do so, but I think the, that that experimentation is so incredible and you know read read his works for the those digressions and the all these tangents that he goes on it's it's a wild thing if you can keep up with it as frustrating as it is but to 
think of the self, to think of how the self can be depicted publicly, you know, is he's such a key writer to get at this. And I've been kind of, uh, the step I want to maybe take with my dissertation now is relating him to what he does in the magazine sketch format of his own writing to maybe what we do now in social media, this kind of short form. Uh, I'm putting myself out there in this certain type of light, this certain type of way in a dem democratized kind of space of expression and interaction. I don't know. That's maybe a bit tenuous, but I think that he's, he's getting to something that's, always going to be a point of anxiety in terms of how are you going to express your own experiences publicly and then of course the most the most intimate experiences of you know drug use and drug addiction and these haunting images of your own childhood hmm. what, what do we see is uh what do we see his influence today so direct influence the one that comes to mind, I think, is actually Baudelaire, firstly. Uh, Baudelaire receives De Quincey similarly to how he receives Edgar Allan Poe, mm -hmm. uh, which I think more famously is his interaction with Poe. Um, he he takes De Quincey's confessions, he, I believe, translates them into French, and then it kind of redepicts them for his own self in this volume from 1860, Les... Paradis artificiel. So that's one thing, you know, if you want to draw direct literary influence. But Quincy, I think, he prefigures so much that we call modernist in literature. Mm -hmm. This playing around with form and memory. You know, I think of, for instance, Obviously, Proust, as we've mentioned, but that first few pages of Joyce's Portrait of the Artist of the, as a Young Man, where he's trying to kind of narrate as if a child would narrate, or maybe Faulkner's Sound in the Fury, particularly that first section, which is narrated in a, or depicted through someone who has a mental disability, intellectual disability, and how that can affect the narrative in, in this kind of kaleidoscopic way where time dissolves into this abstract fabric that's not used the, the linear chronology. And I think he was doing that, you know, how many decades before we call, we think of the modernists as really popularizing that, as well as something that I think is a, a key trait of literary modernism, which is putting that first-person narrative voice to the front and being something that is very present in the text, in the narrative. It's not, you know, the modernists put that first-person voice out there, not only as a narrator, but as a character in, in, the, in their own stories. You know, Jake in um, Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, you know, he's commenting on all these pretty detestable friends of his but he's also one of those a member of that that coterie and how he narrates his tale and how he interacts within that tale is you know that's an innovation of Hemingway 
you know, Nick in The Great Gatsby, I think, is something very similar. So prioritizing that first person voice without any kind of excuse of a frame narrative or a, you know, a pillary novel that the the Victorians did, centering that self within the narrative is something that, you know, I don't want to say De Quincey anticipates, but he he does it so much earlier than we, I think, pop, popularly think of, of when it happens in the literary timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we want to say that there's De Quincey and traits that pop up later on, I think film, I think so many great film directors take something, whether they're directly influenced by De Quincey or not, I, I think they're repeating something that he does. You know, Tarkovsky, like I said, uh, specifically with the mirror. In an email, you mentioned uh, Lynch, Mm -hmm. I think, as well. Um, And the kind of, okay, well, where does the the memory of the scene begin? Where does it, the dream of the scene begin? And, and, you know, in film with montage and everything, you know, how can you, you can play with that to a degree. You probably can't in literature generally but they take that to a a level where they're depicting i think what de quincey does visually which is an incredible uh, experiment to see how that can be rendered out in a different form that de quincey obviously didn't know anything about um i think also someone like speaking more of a certain film directors the auteur of anime film satoshi kone i don't know how familiar you are with that space but his films like paprika i think do this as well that's kind of a an influence on something like inception i guess people bring up as trivia as this characters going in and out of dreams and you know where does the scene where does the reality of the scene end and the dream within the scene begin and how that can be morphed and kind of put on the viewer to fool the viewer as the as the film goes on his film millennium actress which is i think the best visualization of what de quincey does in his autobiographic writing um yeah so i think whether or not you want to sketch out his direct influences might be tough but Mm. to see how he prefigures so much of of our more modern trends and media that transfix people and and entertain people to play around with narrative and form. I think he does, you know, a hundred years earlier. Mm-hmm. So what would, 200 what, years <laughs> what, yeah, 200. what would you advise people to begin? Would it be with the confessions or would it be somewhere else? I do think the confessions is a good start um, just for the sake of that. That is, kind of where this autobiographic and confessionary project begins. But again, you know, don't stop there. The the benefit or the real depth of, of De Quincey's writing is that his texts are depict the palimpsest of memory, but they are themselves the the artifact of this way of thinking about how memory can be written out in a narrative. So and they all constitute a sort of meta text and how you connect them all is, is the fun part. So confessions, yeah, definitely is a great place to start. I think 
Etheria is to go after that. And then the English male coach, which we haven't talked about, but it comes a few years after Suspiria. Um, and where he gets into how having to live on as a as a romantic that has maybe passed his expiration date is explored a bit. Um, but again, also his his sketches, I think I would point specifically to the two recollections of Charles Lamb, maybe if you if you just read a couple and take the project as a whole as, as a text. You know, it's not just the confessions. It shouldn't just be about opium, even though that's kind of what he's now most famous for. It's opium is just that gateway to the conception of memory and, and how to transmit that into literature, which is the the most interesting and worthwhile part to me, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you'd like to add about uh, Quincy or his work? Yeah, I mean that. I mean, yeah, take don't let the the shadow of the the opium hang too heavy over your reading it's it's an interesting uh point of intrigue for a lot of writers or a lot of readers you know i mean even i think you bring up if you pull up his wikipedia page it says you know uh, he was the popularizer of the the drug narrative in western fiction okay or western literature and you know the his robert morrison's autobiography it has a quote by burroughs on the front you know so that's kind of the the popular image of him is this the opium fiend but that yeah it's just that's the gateway into the real meat of what he does here is is memory and experience and expressing that romantic ideal in a way that readers of shelley or wordsworth or even blake you know, it's a different different bent on that that mission, and to see how someone does that not through po- poetry but through prose and autobiography is it's a wild thing to see. And also, he's a great resource for um, as this figure who is a someone who's a real good re- historical resource. You know, mm-hmm. all of those writers of that time, he knew them personally or by degree of separation of one. So yeah. it, to read his sketches and, and what does he think of Wordsworth, Coleridge at different points of his life, which is quite funny. He he really points Wordsworth, paints Wordsworth as a a real arrogant bastard. It turns out, um, or Hazlitt, Lamb, you know, Southey, all these guys who he knew in some at some point in his life. He's it's a fun he's a fun piece of that puzzle in terms of just the literary history of of romanticism of the early Victorian space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what are you, are you, are you just now fully working on your PhD? Yeah, it's hard to do too much besides dissertation work. Um, should be finishing up hopefully shortly um, as well as doing, uh, doing the job search for university jobs at the same time is takes up a lot of, uh, effort but i'll continue probably you know the grad student's dream to take your dissertation into something that's a little more can become a book mm-hmm. you know we'll have that fantasy hopefully it'll turn out that way but and then um yeah i mean i have projects lined up to look at in terms of 
form of forms of literature genre is kind of my focus authorship uh it'll come in time but dissertation work is first i guess for now all right well that seems like a good place to finish up all right um carla carpenter thanks very much thank you